Welcome to the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast, a polyvagal theory informed therapy. I'm your host, Joanne McIntyre. Here we talk everything polyvagal and SSP related. Dr. Porges has provided us with a revolutionary framework for understanding the connection between our autonomic nervous system and behavior. The SSP acoustic intervention is an exciting new therapy helping people all around the world. Hello everyone. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Nina Krauss from Northwestern University. Nina is a Hugh Knowles Professor of Communication Sciences, Neurobiology and Otolaryngology. As a biologist and amateur musician, Nina thinks about sound and brain health. Her research has found that our lives in sound, for better, musicians and bilinguals, and for worse, concussion, hearing loss, language disorders, and the impact of noise, shape how our brain makes sense of the sounds we hear. In her new book of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World, was written for the intellectually curious. Nina advocates for biologically informed choices in education, health, and society, and more information about her work can be found at her lab, BrainVolves. Hi, Nina. How are you doing today? I am just fine. How about you? Good, good. Thank you so much for um, giving me the pleasure of speaking with you and picking your brain and sharing all your knowledge with, with our listeners. I really appreciate it. Really happy to. Thanks for the invitation. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been learning a lot um, as I've been, um, you know, delving into some of the work that you do. And uh, it's always fun to have a back and forth. Yes, yeah. So actually, I'm hoping that what we sort of talk about today, I kind of like sort of bring back and bring within a polyvagal you know, lens. You know, obviously, a lot of our listeners have a polyvagal background and um, and it is most uh, practitioners who listen or even people who listen uh, um, uh, are involved in or interested in using the Safe and Sound Protocol. And I think that um, a lot of practitioners just have a very, um, I'm hoping what we can do today is to help expand that knowledge around the the impact of sound on our brains and our bodies and and just how... um, how important that world is so and I think your work your work's going to help sort of open that up a little bit more um, so yeah thank you again um, so I thought maybe we'll just start with because you've got quite extensive career and maybe just share a little bit of background about how you came to be Professor Nina Cross at Northwestern University so <laughs> You know, I, I think it's it's a combination of of, of luck and uh, desire. Um, I sure didn't make any conscious decisions as I was going along in terms of, oh yeah, I want to become uh, a scientist. I want to become a professor. Uh, it just it just happened, and I, th- I think it it just evolved out of my interest in <laughs> in sound and the brain. You know, I I, I grew up in a um, in a household where we spoke a, a couple of languages, and my mom was a musician, 
and she often sang harmony also with my dad, um, who also um, played violin and they would sometimes play duets. Uh, so I, I grew up in a, in a musical household. And uh, when I went to college, I majored in comparative literature because I knew some languages and I liked to read. Um, and then, you know, something that they're not doing very much anymore in uh, university is, um, you know, when I went to university, we had distribution requirements. And so I had to take a distribution requirement in uh, biology and the sciences. And, um, and, and I, I loved biology. I, I thought, oh my goodness, this is great. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't have known about it unless I had been asked to, you know, to, to, to take a class at, with, in, in, in that area. And I um, also, at that time, I discovered a book by um, Eric Lenberg, and the book is called Biological Foundations of Language. And so I thought, oh, you can combine these things. You know, language is something that I have was thinking about, and um, and and that, that there could be a biological perspective. And I think that one of the things that um, that I think I'm 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 pretty good at is seeing how seemingly uh, different things come together. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I, I, I really thought, well, you know, this, this is great. This is, I just want to keep thinking about, um, about sound and the, the biology underlying it. So, um, and, and I think also in terms of what makes me, me is that, you know, having grown up in two countries and with uh, mostly two languages. Um, I, you know, I, I don't feel as though I can pass for an Italian or that I can pass for an American. Mm -hmm. um, I, what I feel is that I, I belong at the intersection of these uh, countries and cultures. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that with my work as a biologist, I've always, um, and, you know, again, this wasn't a conscious choice. I just always found myself across disciplines. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because we're going to be talking about your, your, your book of Sound Mind, and I think that's what the beauty of what the book brings. And I think as you know, my background is as an occupational therapist and then I did a master's in psychology again, and I think we, we think a little similar in terms of that sort of bridging of different disciplines. And you know, often sound is seen as an audiology sort of area or it's, you know, speech pathology, but um, through just my learning journey as well, the impact of sound is as an OT, I just don't think you can not pay attention to you know, how we process sound in our world and how that enables us to engage socially, um, how it enables obviously to, to learn, to read, but has a lot to do with our whole psyche in terms of who we, our sense of self and, and our, our, our mind wellness. So I think, I think 
um, this knowledge around the impact of, of sound or auditory processing or the acoustic world really does need to expand it across, across disciplines. Yeah, it, it's much more holistic mm. than I think typically it's thought of. Yes, and, yes. Well, that, that's the audiology yeah. world. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and also, you know, uh, there, there, there are many people who one way or another are uh, interested in, in sound and, and the brain and from certainly the, the different areas that, that we research. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if you look at the homepage of our Brain Volts website, you see that, that we, you know, we study, we study concussion, head, head injury in athletes. We study music, we study rhythm, aging, language, language disorders, autism, dyslexia, um, bilingualism. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, again, sound is so pervasive across mm -hmm. all of these different disciplines. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you might wonder what, what are we doing at Brain Volts? But in fact, we are um, thinking about sound and the brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the reason that I, I decided to write this book of Sound Mind is that I, you know, I, I wanted to have this information all in one place. I wanted to be able to communicate to any curious reader, anyone who um, who, you know, it's almost everyone who is involved with sound one way or another. And my, my goal was really that no matter how much or how little you know about the topic, I think that, um, you know, it's my hope that, that, um, that, that you can get something out of the book. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think you definitely I, achieved that. Thank you. Um, but, you know, I, I wrote it conversationally, mm -hmm. so it has a very, you know, conversational tone, but it is, um, it is deeply referenced mm -hmm. and uh, it, 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 it sits on um, the accumulated scientific literature. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not just saying uh, you know, mm -hmm. these, these aren't just my opinions. Um, I'm a biologist, so I'm looking at sound in the brain from a biological perspective and, and trying to pull together, you know, what, what, what do we know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know there, there really is quite a bit to know. Exactly, exactly. So getting back to your journey, so you took the biology class and you, and you read the book about um, language. So, so then where did your journey take you? Well, I, uh, I decided to, uh, to go to graduate school kind of in, in neuroscience and to study uh, sound and the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I first worked with Peter Dallas, who has done, uh, uh, you know, some of the, the, the most important and pioneering and formative work on the inner ear, the outer mm -hmm. hair cells in particular. Um, 
and and I, I was working in his lab and I was studying something called um, two-tone suppression in the auditory nerve, which is how uh, different uh, tones um, combine to form something that you really can't predict from the two tones by themselves. And you know, I thought it was it was pretty fascinating. And at that time, I was I was telling my mom about what I was doing, and she was saying, you know, Nina, <laughs> what 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 are you doing, really? <laughs> and I you know I realized very clearly then that um, you know two tone suppression is something that I could talk to maybe I don't know sixteen people in the world about. <laughs> And that really my interest was to, um, to, to do something that uh, lives in, in the world, in the, in, the, in the world outside of the ivory tower, that lives um, in the world where, where my mom lives. And uh, I, I felt at that time that if what I was doing was not something that I could explain to my mom. I, I really didn't want to be doing that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then, you know, what, what I did is I, I still was studying sound in the brain with neurons and electrodes in animal models. And I was recording uh, from single neurons in the rabbit, the rabbit auditory cortex. And it, it, it was a formative experience for me because, you know, I, I would have a rabbit and a neuron and a sound and um, the neuron would respond in a certain way to that sound. And then when I taught the animal that the sound had a meaning, that it would signal some form of, of reinforcement, the same rabbit, same sound, same neuron, but the neuron's response was different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I could really see firsthand that as we make, as we learn, as we make sound to meaning associations, our brain changes. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, one way or another, I've been st- studying and thinking about this idea because um, our life in sound makes us us. No two people will respond to sound in the same way um, mm. because their life and sound is, is, is different. We've learned different things. The languages we speak, the music we make, the language mm. disorders we might have. Um, mm. All of these things influence how we hear the world and we learn mm. through that hearing. Mm-hmm. I think what you're saying is, 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 is so important. And I know on, I listened to a, another um, interview you did and you you played I think they're on your the brain faults website but you play recordings of um, and I know that we'll explain that that you can actually take EEG recordings of the brain which basically replicate the sound source and that you had three different correct me I mean you'll probably explain it much better than I am but I know you had a sentence and you had three different people who heard that sentence and yet when you recorded the EEG of those three different people, there was some slight, they're all hearing the exact same 
original auditory stimuli, but yet their brain processed that sentence slightly differently. Do I have, am I no, saying that correctly? that's absolutely right. Mm. You know, and, and as, as I'm talking to you, um, the neurons in your brain mm. um, and mine that respond to sound are producing electricity and we can measure that electricity with scalp electrodes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, actually the, 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 the brain sings, um, you know, as, as, as a neuroscientist, if you put an electrode into the brain, you will hear, you know, if, if you attach the electrode, not only to a screen that you can see the voltages of electricity changing, but you can hear the electricity. So think mm -hmm. of, it's like static in a way that um, it, you, you hear tss, 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 tss. and depending on where you are, um, there are telltale signs of what the neuron activity is going to be. Mm -hmm. And if you, it's one of the ways that we guide our electrodes, because if you are in an auditory responsive area, if I'm playing a sound that repeats a sound that that goes bing 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 if i've hit some part of the brain that responds to sound i will hear so you know there is this this electricity that happens in response to sound and if you are able to sample many 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 neurons at once which is what we can do with electrodes on the scalp and we can um, measure the population response of these many, many neurons um, in the same way as you can. Um, I mean, right now, as I'm speaking with you, my voice is going, is being picked up by a microphone, and then there is an electrical signal. The electrical signal is then um, fed back to the speaker that enables you to, it converts the sound the, elect the electricity back to sound. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens in the brain because uh, the currency of the nervous system is electricity. So um, if I measure your brain's response to sound, I can take that, um, that, that electricity and just as, as you would a, an MP3, you know, this, these are the, these electrical events that you can then play through a speaker and, and not only see the brain's response to sound, but you can hear it. Mm -hmm. And if your sampling is really, really high and you're very clever um, and you have equipment that will not impart any jitter between the timing of the stimulus delivery and the recording of the response, you can actually pick up the brain's response to a sentence, to a piece of music, and you're right. Um, you know, you, you, you will still recognize the sentence as that sentence, as we all play it back, um, but it will sound different if it is coming from your brain or, or my brain or anybody else's brain. And we all have kind of our, our neural timbre our neural signature mm -hmm. and we can take the same person and measure their brain's response to sound um you know if i if i, if I measure your brain's response to some speech today and then in a year or two or three 
um, I measure your brain's response. Well, you know, it, it, it will certainly will have changed based on your life in sound, but it will also be very recognizable as mm. your signature. So interesting. So when I read that, it made me think about, well, because a lot of listeners work in a mental health um, arena, that to be aware of what they're actually communicating, um, how is their listener actually listening to that sentence? And I think that that nuances of, of, of hearing it might not be always how a therapist might be expecting them to actually hear it because um, I, I know when we're going to talk about sound and the different components of sound that those are from right, you know, well, often we talk about the prosodic inflection, but I know you talk a lot about the harmonics and how um, that gets wired into our neurons, but really based on this life experience in sound as, as, as we grow up. And um, I guess that's what I kind of wanted to, for us to kind of really unfold because a lot of people work with children with autism or, or um, individuals with developmental trauma where their life in sound is, is, um, is not always the most healthy ex experience. I wonder if you just wanted to add a little bit to that. Yeah. No, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons that you and I are so in love with sound is because um, it, it, it carries so much information and so much information about, um, about our emotions and mm -hmm. about um, it, how we're feeling at the moment how someone else is feeling um one of of the very fascinating things about sound in terms of the its its characteristics is that um sound connects us and it connects us in a way that nothing else does you know i mean you and i right now we're we're having a conversation mm -hmm. and there's no script mm -hmm. it, it it's a back and forth mm -hmm. and it's reverberant it's resonating it is um, mm -hmm. um it, it's it's alive mm -hmm. you know it is alive and um it is what my hero ian mcgilchrist calls betweenness mm -hmm. um he talks about the, the betweenness and the flow of many things. And um, to me, sound really epitomizes, you know, is emblematic of this concept of betweenness. So the betweenness between a, a therapist and uh, a parent, a therapist and a child, um, this is a very important back and forth. And because the sound mind, I think that a, a, a premise of my book is that the hearing brain is vast mm -hmm. and the hearing brain engages how we think, how we feel, how we move and how we combine the information from our other senses. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the fancy formal way of saying that is that the hearing brain 
engages our uh, sensory, cognitive, motor, and reward systems. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it does. Yes. And so through sound, and this is why sound is so important therapeutically, and how it connects us in every way for better or for worse. Um, sound really engages all of these parts of us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we've had experiences and experiences that we associate with sounds and that they may not be um, the kinds of experiences that, that we feel safe about, you know, so for example, um, in, in terms of the evolution of sound and our brain's ability to make sense of it, sound is our warning sense. And mm-hmm. it, um, it, it, it will make us aware of, of danger. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the same way as it can make us aware of, oh, this is um, a source of food or this is a potential mate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sound is so fundamental to the life of um, any organism. Mm. And I think you talk about that in in your book, A Sound Mind, that how um, our ability to perceive sound is evolutionary ancient. And um, I know when, from a polyvagal perspective, that whole portus of theory is really based on evolutionary biology of how our autonomic nervous system um, has, has evolved um, and become more sophisticated o- over time. But uh, you're exactly right. Our, our whole experience with sounds, um, it's an old, ancient neural system wired into our bodies for, for, for survival, essentially, isn't it? Survival and then as we evolve for, for, for connection. Yeah, and, and also I think that if, if I, you know, I, I talk about uh, I, that I, I study sound in the brain, um, but, but when I say brain, I include um, every part of our body so that, you know, our heart and lungs and uh, mm-hmm. the uh, various sympathetic, parasympathetic uh, responses of all of our organs and our cells um, interact with um Again, even, you know, I think we think of sound as as being a holistic concept. Well, certainly the brain is extremely holistic and and much more holistic, in my view, than is often um, portrayed in the typical lecture hall where people want to see, oh, you know, where in the brain is this happening? Oh, things are lighting up and, 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 and you know, and, and the brain is, um, you know, it's, it's inherently a paradox in that, yes, there are specialized areas in the brain, but it works to the extent that the brain works together. So you, you, you have this, this circuitry that um, really depends on the entire thing mm-hmm. in order to work and and i think that that's that's a really important thing to keep in, in mind 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and think about how sound evolved even before we, you know, organisms were able to, um, you know, communicate in the kinds of language that we now use or that animals use in various, very sophisticated forms of communication. Mm-hmm. And I think you, in your book, you sort of help to expand that because I know my, my learning certainly um, of going into the acoustic sort of world was just learning that sort of, you know, ear to brain neural pathway and the different sort of processing sort of junctions along along the way. And there really wasn't much in that sort of, you know, efferent system of coming back from the auditory centre back to, um, you know, feeding back information back to fine tune our listening or networks to to other areas of the brain. And we know, you know, naturally, you know, if you listen to music, you, you, you feel good, you, you know, feel like your motor system comes on board where you want to move, move to that. And the same when we hear and talk about in your book, if we hear, you know, uh, somebody we connect with their voice, you know, you get those feelings and sensations in, of and emotions that go with listening, listening to that. So there certainly has to be more than just the straight neural connection from ear to auditory centre that that we have to have all these branches. Surprising is, uh, I mean, it's right in front of us, the fact that if you look at the ear, the ear has three times as many outer hair cells as inner hair cells. Mm -hmm. And the inner hair cells is primarily our ear to brain pathway, but the outer hair cells, the larger pathway, is the way in which the ear listens to the brain and the ear will listen to the brain based on our life in sound based on what we have learned and so this efferent system and the efferent system um, which again is massive um, and involves not just the traditional auditory structures, but in fact, how we think and feel and move and integrate our other senses. Um, this efferent system is, is, is the secret sauce, you know, mm-hmm. that is what uh, evolves and teaches us over the course of our lifetime. Um, it, 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 as we make different sound to meaning connections throughout our lives, and it's through that efferent system. And and I, um, you know, I, I write about this at some length in in the book. But I, I also I hope your listeners and you might put up a, a link to this. Um, I, I put this concept into a, a very short piece. It's just four hundred words. It's in uh, the the journal in in hearing research. And I talk about the beams hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is that B stands for brain, E stands for efferent. So, you know, as we learn with experience, our brain to ear pathway uh, changes. And as we learn things really, really well, our afferent pathway, which is our ear to brain pathway, actually also changes that becomes our new default system. I mean, you and I will respond to the sound of our name 
being called even when we're asleep because that's the default pathway. We've, we've had a lot of experience with that sound, particularly you and me with our names. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, whole, the whole circuitry is changing, the efferent system and then eventually the afferent system. And then that constitutes the M. So I have B, E, A, I have B, I have brain, mm-hmm. efferent, is E, A is afferent, M is memory, mm-hmm. MS, memory for sound. So that as we experience our many sound to meaning connections, we also uh, create our memories, our auditory memories, which, um, you know, if, if you think about what, what is, what, what is it that makes us um, individuals? Mm-hmm. It is our our memory, our particular memories that mm-hmm. you know we can walk into a place and uh, again, based on the experiences that we have had in our life, mm-hmm. um, our so hearing you sound is is really tight. Yeah. So hearing you as my mind ticking over in terms of you know being a clinician and. And you know, trying to assess, you know, how how do we can we assess this kind of efferent feedback system? Because you're right, it obviously is the one that helps fine tune. And as a clinician wanting to help facilitate, you know, sort of improvement, obviously I want this this system to be um, this feedback system to yeah. be um, yeah efficient so, so and and. You know, again, I think another real motivating force in my own career and as it is in yours is um, to take what we know and to apply it, right? Mm-hmm. To actually um, use it for good in, in education, in medicine. Um, and um, so, so we have been measuring the brain's response to sound, which we call the frequency following response. The frequency mm-hmm. following response or FFR has been around for many decades, but we have um, capitalized on that technology and have refined it so that we can measure the brain's response to uh, very complex sounds like speech and music. And what we have found is not only do individuals have their own way of um, of registering, of hearing the world, but this is something that uh, probably the strongest way it can be used clinically is as a subject, as his own control. So, uh, say before um, a, a a child on the autism spectrum. Uh, undergoes some of your treatment, you have a baseline. And mm-hmm. then over time, you can see how the brain's response to sound has changed. So am I right in thinking the, um, the autoacoustic emissions, that is that something that could be used just for a clinician to sort of see is this if not really okay i'm not on the right track okay Uh, it's not going to tell you i mean you know Mm -hmm. yes we know that crudely auto auto acoustic emissions 
are um, you know somewhat different in a person who is a musician who has spent a lot of time making music, um, but you're not going to get the kind of granularity mm-hmm. that you get with a, the the actual brain response from the the frequency following response that you know for example a child on the autism spectrum um a child on on the autism spectrum typically does not have difficulty um, understanding the words that are said it is often the intention Mm -hmm. so you know am i asking a question am i mad am i sad am i making a statement how emphatic am i being um and so with the frequency following response, we can measure the brain's response to um, a change in in pitch. So as if I'm asking a question, I'll say, what? If I'm making a statement, I'll say, what? And so pitch either goes up or down very, very simply. And most typically developing kids will, you can see that the frequency following response will uh, follow that particular pitch change, and you you can you know you you can predict what the child heard by looking at the brain's response. You can see, oh look, I, I can see a, a sweep in frequency going up. Um, and what we have discovered is that there are some kids on the autism spectrum who um, just fail to track these changes in pitch, which are so important for um, indicating what it is that, um, that, that you mean. And mm-hmm. it is also uh, very much linked to prosody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a whole chapter uh, in, in my book about rhythm mm-hmm. and the rhythm of speech. You know, I mean, everyone is very familiar with the rhythm of music, but the rhythm of speech is tremendously important and it's partly important in signaling intent and so being able to measure the brain's response um, to these different ingredients in sound and so if if you think about um, sound um, sound consists of many ingredients and you know i think one of the reasons that sound is under recognized is because it's invisible And you know, if you take any any visual object like this book, you can see it has a color, a shape, a size, a texture. Um, so these are all the ingredients. And sound has ingredients too. It has ingredients like pitch, timing, timbre, phase, harmonics, loudness, prosody. Um, these are all different ingredients that are captured in a single sound wave. You know, as I'm saying, hello. All of that, you've got pitch, timing, timbre, harmonics, all of that is right there. And so in the brain's response to just something like hello, you can um, really get a sense of, well, you know, where where are the child's strengths? Where are the child's bottlenecks in terms of processing these different ingredients in sound? And uh, this is something that then we can think about and also monitor mm. uh, with with time and with therapy and if our if, if response helps to detect for children who who are having difficulties with prosody with tracking prosody of that 
inflection that that can help sort of monitor that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, it, 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 it it's, uh, it, it does require um, sophisticated um, uh, technology, mm-hmm. but it's not, um, um, it, it's not really that difficult to, um, to obtain the data. Mm-hmm. I mean, you only need a couple of scalp electrodes and a couple of earbuds and then you kind of you you press go and mm-hmm. and uh, the, the um you know the um ffr will be generated in in time and mm-hmm. then, um you know have a look at mm-hmm. how this particular child is responding to a sound that you care about mm-hmm. so now your lab's done quite a lot of you know, obviously extensive different kinds of you know tools to help assess um, a lot of it's like looking at the EEG of how we're processing sound in the brain you know did you ever just ever look at middle ear muscles you know obviously Paul just looked a lot at of the role of the middle ear muscles and and stabilizing that you know ossicle chain and the tympanic membrane did you all ever look at that at all or no we haven't and 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 I think that um, you know I've become increasingly interested in um in 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 the in the reflex mm-hmm. pathway i mean again we know that the reflex pathway is is malleable is something that that can be changed mm-hmm. um but i i don't know in you know in, in particular kids i think you know for example we we've studied kids on the autism spectrum we've studied kids um who are, are dyslexic have difficulty learning to read, which of course is based on often a difficulty um, hearing different sounds, different harmonics, different uh, prosodic events, Mm -hmm. uh, different rhythms. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, you know, so, so, so this is something that, that we are able to, um, to, measure and to then apply with a clinical perspective it gives the clinician um, that much more information about the child the strengths the bottlenecks and also a very objective way of looking at change mm-hmm. um, but it would be very fascinating i think if um, at the same time middle ear function was measured and so you could see the extent to which um you know perhaps it's just a single ingredient in the frequency following response um that is that um that tracks mm-hmm. with middle ear muscle activity i i really don't know mm, no i was just curious um, um i have a background in i did uh, my training in uh, EEG biofeedback. So I certainly find um, that just another fascinating area and another another gateway into look what's happening in the brain. And then obviously using biofeedback, we can use that first as a therapy approach as well. Um, 
since we're talking about rhythm, you have a great chapter in your in your book, just really talking about rhythm. And actually, I remember um, I initially come across your work, Nina, years ago when I lived in Florida and um, and had a, a pediatric practice. And one of the therapy tools that I used was interactive metronome. And I think your lab had done some 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 work on that te- so, you know that temporal timing um, and language. But then I know you, um, there was a research that you did um, where I think it was with toddlers and you were looking at if they could replicate uh, a drum rhythm and then you followed them later on. And what you all found is when they were young, if they could not imitate or replicate a rhythm, that these were the kiddos that had difficulty actually learning what language and reading. So I wonder if you could just... And I remember reading, I was like, oh, my gosh, this would be a fantastic, just really easy identifier assessment tool for kids at risk. Yes, yeah. Well, but it, it, we have not, we're not the first ones mm. to discover that um, rhythm and the ability to, for example, entrain to a beat mm. um, is, is quite associated with reading ability and language ability. And, you know, we, we have, we've seen this. Um, but I think one, one of the things that we have learned is that rhythm, um, you know, there, there are many kinds of rhythm. And, it, you know, at first when I um, began uh, doing research on rhythm at, uh, at, at Brain Vaults, um, you know, I, I, I thought and we, we had many different rhythmic tasks. We had tasks where kids were following along with the beat. They had to reproduce a rhythm. They had to um, uh, uh, be aware of whether um, uh, timing cues were happening. Um, and I thought that if a child was good at rhythm, that they'd be good across the board at all these different rhythm tasks. And you know what we discovered is that in fact there are very different rhythm intelligences, and one of the reasons that um, you know I think music is so such a, a powerful um, uh, sonic uh, uh, world for us is that just rhythmically, um, you know, if you think of following a beat, you have the time signature. So, um, you know, you might say shave and a haircut two bits. And so, you know, that you could just uh, denote it as this, well, this is what the, the time signature is. Or you can look at the note values and again, note, am I saying shave and cut two bits? Right, so the duration have these long notes, these short notes, um, and they are shown by the note values. So in music, inherently, both with the underlying rhythm and by the rhythms overlaid by the note values and the rests, the quiet, um, that's all part of rhythm skills. And and you cannot predict how well a person will be good, how, how well a person will do on um, following a beat based on their ability to 
tap out a rhythm pattern or vice versa. A child's ability to follow a rhythm pattern um, is not going to predict how he's going to be in terms of um, in training to a beat. Mm-hmm. So um, these are different skills. And, and one of the things that, that um, and, and, and they align with different um, underlying brain activity. You can imagine that uh, following a pattern is slower because it has to evolve over time, right? Whereas the beat has to be very, very precise and um, has to it occurs at a, at a precise moment in time. And so mm-hmm. um, that is associated with the brain's response to sound that is very, very fast. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's overlap between these two domains. Um, but interactive metronome uh, spans both of these. And so the research that we've done, and, and you can find, um, you know, I, 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 on our website under rhythm, um, we have a whole section on interactive metronome because by now we've done five or six studies using interactive metronome. I was so skeptical when uh, you know we, we we first started this work and someone twisted my arm and um, and then I you know again was was surprised, which is the fun, one of the fun things about doing science, but also. Um, again, there is an article that I will, um, I, you, you can, you can link to it, It's in the hearing journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it is about, uh, rhythmic medicine mm-hmm. and it is about our experience with, um, interactive metronome. So I think we call it something like digital music digital rhythmic medicine. Anyway, I'll, I'll send it to you. Okay, good. Um, but but what, what I did, or we did in that article is kind of pull together what we learned from the many different studies that we did on interactive metronome and try to provide a conceptual framework for that work. Um, so maybe that will be of, of mm-hmm. help mm-hmm. to, um, to clinicians. And, and, and I, I think that, you know, again, it's something that can be followed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 I think it has a place at the therapeutic table. So in your study, what did you actually, was it with the kids you had an issue with, with being on the beat or the kids who had an, an issue replicating the rhythm were the ones that went on to have the language and reading difficulties? What tended to be? Or was it both? Was it yeah, sure? well, I mean, d- kids can have different patterns. Yeah, you're right. Um, but the, the most obvious one was really just the ability to synchronize mm-hmm. to a beat. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you know, this also takes a while to develop. So, we, you know, we, we had a project, an NIH-funded project called Bio, Bio, Bio Beats and right. Bio Tots. Uh, mm-hmm. where we started with three-year-olds and followed them as they then learned to read for the next five years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, so the three-year-olds, some of them were having a hard time synchronizing to the beat. And, mm-hmm. um, but in time, they could learn developmentally to, to do this. But mm-hmm. what was interesting is at the same time, we assessed their language skills 
Mm -hmm. And we were able to see that the kids with the better language skills also had the better rhythm skills. Mm -hmm. And in measuring the FFR, we mm -hmm. could see um, that the brains of the kids who had the better rhythm skills and the better language skills, these are the kids whose response to sound was also following all of the rhythmic patterns in mm -hmm. the sound wave. Mm -hmm. So you could see in their brain response that they were following these rhythmic contours. So interesting. And then I know in your book also you talk about that obviously rhythms is rhythms in communication as well in terms of the back and forth and the timing and that that's kind of like a, a rhythm as, as well. Um, yeah, very rhythm. much so. I mean, again, if we think of, of sound as connecting us, it's the, this back and forth of uh, being attuned to each other's rhythms and and you know it gets a little more complicated over Zoom, but um, generally we're pretty good at knowing when it's your turn to talk and when it's my turn to talk, and um, and it's you know we get these these rhythmic cues that um, that that connect us and help us work in sync. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. I think you do some nice things in the beginning of your book, of just, just really highlighting how important our sound world is and how we do take it for granted. Um, and, you, do, I mean, I know I've done it myself and you, I think you give the example of saying, like, oh, if you ask somebody what sense would you prefer to lose, you know, your vision or your hearing, and most people will say, well, you know, I couldn't lose my vision, so I'd lose my hearing. But yet, you know, our hearing really is what really really does sort of connect us and um it helps keeps keeps us safe and um so i'm hoping people get out of today that just how important our sound world um our sound world is so i just wanted to move on to because you've done some amazing research in some other clinical areas and just sort of unpack that a little bit um but also just also highlighting that um, you know, we talk about neuroplasticity in the brain, that you talk about that our auditory system is very plastic as, as well. Yeah, it's, it's both plastic and stable. You know, you don't want to have a nervous system that changes every second. Um, that would be disorienting. Um, so certain things, you know, you learn uh, the, the, the nervous system um, has both stability and the great ability to change based on uh, the connections that, that are made. And, mm -hmm. and I think that the connections made through sound, especially because our sonic world engages how we think and feel and move and coordinate our other senses, um, all of this is uh, something that we learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, you know, we've learned, for example, that there are certain kinds of neural signatures associated, for example, with, um, well, with, with playing a musical instrument. So by a musician, I, I really just mean anybody who regularly plays a musical instrument. And, uh, you know, what we see is that uh, especially the timing cues and the harmonic cues 
are enhanced in people who make music and of course voice counts um and and you know if you think the the harmonic cues you know the harmonics and sound are what um help us distinguish a tuba and a flute playing the same note that's the harmonics but the harmonics also enable us to tell the difference between a d and a g so what we learn through music is very very relevant to language Mm -hmm. Um, we find that that the bilingual signature is really strengthens certain pitch cues which um, help group us as auditory objects so this is nina talking Um, that's a waterfall over there Um, and um, you know we, we find with with kids on on well kids who have language disorders like um, reading disorders and developmental language delays um, typically have trouble with timing and harmonics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The autism spectrum kids are distinct in their own way because they really do have this difficulty often with, um, with, with pitch changes, with these mm-hmm. um, prosodic changes in um in pitch mm-hmm. um often a lot of the, yeah. the psychologists or people who work with individuals with trauma a lot of them have difficulty um or misreading cues in in pitch or prosodic inflection where often they sort of misinterpret a neutral tone as as as, as aggressive or defensive or um yeah or misreading the emotional content in 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 it, which I know often is what we see in, in autism as well. So, um, so when you said in the book that our auditory sense is very plastic, sort of to sort of say that with therapy and that we know that this sense of detecting or more accurately detecting the emotions in voice can change. Yeah, very much so. And 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 I, th- I think the other there, there's often a misconception that uh, you know it, it's too late to change that as you're an adult or an older person but you know I mean the fact is and you know we know this very well from research across species is that uh, you know the brain will continue to change until we die so you know you have this this, this inherent plasticity which is why it is so important for I mean this is why we we undertake therapies that we think can um, help change our brain for the good. It is also why, you know, in the last chapter of of my book, it's my call to action. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's really important that we think about the choices that we make in our lives for um, the the sounds around us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how how much, again, people don't realize what an impact a negative impact noise has, and and I'm not talking about loud noise, but just moderate level noise has on, again, our cardiovascular health and our ability to think and our emotions. Um, So these these are choices we can make and we can, you know, choose to learn languages. We can choose to um, undertake certain therapies. We can choose to make music. Um, We can choose to spend our time in ways that honor sound and um 
you know, I mean, just things like, um, you know, making music with, with your family or talking to your child instead of to your phone. Um, you know, <laughs> there are so many uh, the, you know, daily decisions that, that, that we can make in our lives um, that really revolve around sound because sound is so, it's such a powerful force for health which is also why, you know, because making sense of sound is one of the hardest jobs that we ask our brain to do. If you get hit in the head, if you sustain a concussion, that will disrupt sound processing in the brain. And this is another area that we are studying um, because, you know, at, at Northwestern University, we have our, our Big Ten athletes and uh, we have an NIH grant that is enabling us to follow these athletes, all 500 of them, um, males and females, uh, before and after their, um, their sports season. And if anyone sustains a concussion, we follow them very carefully. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, with, with, with concussion, if you go to a sports medicine conference, people are... Um, everybody is talking either about balance mm -hmm. or about vision. Mm -hmm. And hearing is only recently beginning to be a blip on the horizon. Um, but in fact, you know, again, with the frequency following response, you can really measure the brain's response to sound and see if it has been disrupted by a concussion. Again, it can be used as a metric Mm -hmm. for, um, for, for what do you typically yeah. what do you typically see then post concussion in that well you know it, it depends on when the concussion was sustained are we looking immediately after concussion or is this something over time mm -hmm. because initially and and you know concussions are um, they're very hard to to see, and they're very, um, they're very different one from the other. You know, depending on where, how how, how mm -hmm. hard you got hit. I mean, so many different things. Um, so some people who sustain a concussion have entirely normal frequency following responses, and there are others who, in fact, um, shortly after the concussion, almost the processing of almost every sound ingredient is disrupted. Mm -hmm. And over time, you can see um, different ingredients coming back online. And mm -hmm. one of the ones that is the longest to come back um, is, is the fundamental frequency, which is a, a very important pitch cue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there have been some athletes who, um, even after they've recovered, still have um, a, a, a diminished uh, response to the fundamental frequency, which is a very important grouping cue. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, and, and, and it is our hope if we can manage to um, to, to to scare up the resources to, to do this. Um, I really do. There, there's very good reason to believe that uh, rhythm therapies, you know, the kinds uh, like interactive metronome may be quite helpful mm -hmm. in as, as a strategy as one of the strategies to 
help an athlete recover from the concussion. Interesting. Um, you know, most, most concussions just resolve on their own within a week or two, but then, you know, maybe uh, 20% or so, I mean, a, a sizable number can continue to have symptoms for quite mm-hmm. a prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, there's recurrent the, over time too, isn't it? Yes. But, but, you know, one of the things that, 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 that intrigues me about, about your work is that, um, you know, there are a number of athletes who have sustained a concussion and sustained a concussion even years ago who still suffer from hyperacusis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we really don't understand very well. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand very well how to treat it. I know you you have um, mm-hmm. you have your ways, which I think is so mm-hmm. important because hyperacusis is is a big problem that mm-hmm. is under, again under recognized and under treated. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's been rather fascinating as as athletes have uh, learned about our work. You know, I, I get correspondence from you know oceans of correspondence from people who say you know um ever since i sustained a concussion i have had difficulty um hearing a noise Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i'm very sensitive to sound Mm -hmm. hypersensitive Mm -hmm. to sound um so you know that that's that's Mm -hmm. another component here that i think is um is, is, is part of the picture Yes, yeah, yeah. Obviously, all very complex, and you know, a lot of the hyperacusis within our sort of our sort of framework is looking from a from a polyvagal perspective, where you've got a heightened stress response, and so therefore, like a shift in those middle ear muscles, sort of kind of loosening their tension, so the ear opens up as a you know sort of evolutionary survival response to detect other possible threat-related sounds in, in the environment. But at the same time, sounds become, um, you know, heightened. Um, and, yes, and then the ability to pull voice from background noise becomes in, impaired as, as well. So, yeah, that's very curious with concussions. Um, I know I've attended some workshops on, on, on neurofeedback for people with concussions and, and they've had some good results from doing um, neurofeedback. So on the other side with your athletes, you actually did some, some research to actually, if I have interpreted correctly, to show that there's actually gains in our auditory processing from being involved in um, athletic um, endeavours. Absolutely. So, you know, I, my... my, my um my view is that every every child should have a music education every child should have should should be strong physically strong and flexible and uh and athletics um are are hugely hugely important and 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 i'm I'm afraid you know in our society we so often um just focus attention on on the kids who make varsity on the 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 students who show extraordinary strengths in playing violin um but this is for everyone this Mm -hmm. is for every 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 person um 
And so because we are doing this large scale study and we are testing these elite athletes, um, they're, they're just, you know, wonderful and so fit um, without sustaining a concussion. Um, you know, we, we were wondering, well, would being an athlete um, strengthen the sound mind? And so, you know, we asked first, well, would some of these ingredients, pitch, timing, timbre, prosody, would some of these ingredients, the processing of them, would they be stronger? Mm -hmm. And um, we, we didn't see that there was a strength in uh, any of the, the processing. But what we did discover is that you know the, the 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 brain is always active and there's always electricity in the brain um and we discovered that the athletes have excessively uncommonly quiet brains mm. Mm. and so as a consequence their ability to make sense of sound their ability to make sense of all kinds of environmental stimuli um, are better because it's a simple signal to noise issue where if the noise right. is very low, the signal pops out. And this is in contrast to what we see in uh, kids who have suffered linguistic deprivation, uh, kids who have grown up in poverty. These children have excessively noisy brains. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, this is, 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 is something that, that I think we can, we can draw on and, and, and learn and learn also, you know, for example, the, the musician and the bilingual, they have a stronger sense of um, sound processing by enhancing the processing of certain sound ingredients. Mm -hmm. um, but the background noise is the same as in a typical person, mm -hmm. the athlete, um, is able to make better sense of sound in a different way, not by strengthening those particular ingredients, but by having a quieter background. Right. Interesting. So that makes me think of, um, is it, you know, as a clinician, my framework, we're looking at that sensory input coming up into the brain and is that coming in through our extremities crisp and clear because crisp, clear sensory information comes into the cortex for for clearer processing so does that help to decrease the noise so somewhat so we can detect those that input clearer you know that that's yeah. that's interesting and obviously as an athlete you've got crisp information coming from my my motor my balance my tactile my vision my hearing and it's 24 7 crisp so therefore yeah interesting because we often, as a as a our approach, often um, is a bottom up approach of helping those other sort of sensory systems get processed more efficiently in the brain um, for for better output. So, to segue then to since we're talking about noise, as we get older, that our auditory system becomes more compromised and also you know, we get more noise in the brain. So maybe you just talk a little bit about what actually happens with our auditory and then 
obviously I'm sure going to lead to, well, what can we do as we get older to, to help keep our sound mind, our ear and sound mind as optimal as can be? And I know you're going to say music <laughs> is one. Which is- Honestly, um, one of, uh, what characterizes research on aging is mm-hmm. the tremendous variability. You know, mm-hmm. like if you look developmentally, there is less variability than you see on the older age of, of, of the spectrum because, um, you know, we've had so many years to develop into who we are. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, our, certainly our life and sound and, and uh, all of our experience um, make some people and some brains very sound and some not so sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, we, we do as, in a population uh, can see more uh, background noise in general with aging, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not the case with everybody at all. And if you, um, you know, we have done a lot of work with uh, people who regularly make music and aging, and we see that their response to sound is as good as anybody's response to sound at any um, any stage of, of life. So um, there are clearly things that, that can be done and, and, and uh, therapeutic approaches. Um, you know, so, so, you know, we've looked at um, uh, uh, various brain fitness programs, uh, especially the ones that were designed by Mike Merzenich, um, Positive Science, and uh, they were designed particularly with sound in mind. And I have his Brain HQ. Yeah. Yes. It's so, program. Uh, you know, th- th- this is what, you know, I think what, what one of the, his earlier programs that were very, very, very um, associated with, you know, they were based on, on sound. I don't know how the, the more, um, the, the more recent ones are, but we you know we did studies on older adults just to see if um, you know, we, we measured uh, hearing and noise, we measured, um, memory, we measured the brain's response to sound, and uh, the, the people who went through this training program for eight weeks, we found that their memory got better, that timing in their brain uh, got faster, um, and um, so, so, you know, this, this is something that we saw over time and did, we didn't see it in the, the controls who spent the same amount of time watching educational videos and asking, mm-hmm. answering questions about those, those videos. So clearly there are things that we can do, which comes back to the choices we make. How do we, how do we spend our time? Um, and the hearing loss is a problem, but it's not as huge a problem I mean, you know, we hear with our brain and we know that from, you know, cochlear implants, you can bypass the whole ear and, and you know, you, you can um, affect hearing. You, you can, a person can, can make sense of sound. Um, so we, we hear with our brain, think of Beethoven. Um, that said, so, so you know, like we, we've uh, looked at people with, with um, mild and moderate presbycusis age-related hearing loss and and found that what was actually the most important in terms of their brain responses to sound in terms of how good they were at hearing a noise and their auditory memory was what they had done in their lives so people Mm -hmm. who you know who did make music and um, were 
um, spoke multiple languages and, um, and, and were socially engaged, you know, mm-hmm. and physically fit. I mean, mm-hmm. all of these are, these are important factors. Mm-hmm. And um, there is only, um, you know, the, 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 the factor um, the, the factor of the actual audiogram is smaller mm-hmm. than what you might expect. That mm-hmm. said, if you if you know we start losing our hearing, we should make sure to um, to get a hearing aid to amplify what we hear, mm-hmm. so that because the hearing brain is vast and it engages how we think and feel and move and interact with the world and our other senses. Um, if you are not hearing well, um, it will affect your ability to think and to remember. Mm-hmm. And so I think a, a lot of the, 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 the fear and scare of Alzheimer's, which is certainly very real and very true, but I think t- to some extent, um, you know, people are, are, are very freaked out when they start, um, you know, not remembering as well or feeling like they're thinking as clearly, but a lot of it in, in many cases can come just from not hearing as mm-hmm. well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the other thing, because the brain is plastic, I really would encourage anyone who gets a hearing aid to stay with it because mm-hmm. the, the brain, you know, we're lucky that we don't, we have a brain that doesn't change on a dime. Mm-hmm. It will change over time depending on what we do, but we need to retrain mm-hmm. the brain mm-hmm. um, to pay attention to sound in, in a slightly different way. And mm-hmm. it's something that, that it, it takes time to change the brain. Because mm-hmm. you speak in your, in your book that there's a higher incidence of dementia with hearing loss. Yeah, no, yes. and, and that's the work that um, uh, Bialystok has has done, and um, yeah, and, and and others. I mean, it it really has been um, mm-hmm. the, the link between how we think, and mm-hmm. and we actually found um, um, even in in uh, people who. Um, who get a hearing aid, they um, often report being able to, to think better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it, this system, as we started out um, saying, this is a very, this is a holistic system. Mm-hmm. It's so interrelated mm-hmm. to our biology. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember um, Dr. Minson, who was part of the um, integrated listening systems, talks about, you know, sound as a nutrient for the brain, that it really does sort of, when you think about it, when all those little hair cells get stimulated, it brings electrical activity to the brain. And uh, we know when you listen to violins that you feel energised and uplifted and, and um, it is very sort of, yeah, Good for our good for our brains. Unfortunately, um, all that I have learned, I did not grow up um, learning a musical instrument. So um, 
that's not one of the strategies that I certainly could pick it up now. Um, so for people listening, um, what would be your advice for, for them to, to help keep their, like, a sound mind healthy? Yeah. I would say, uh, first of all, be aware of sound. Recognize mm-hmm. sound. Um, you know, do see if, if, if you do have a hearing loss, if that is something that, that can, be, um, can be helped. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think much more important, it's a lifestyle issue of um, choosing how we spend our time. And, you know, one of the, the wonderful things about, uh, say, playing a musical instrument or um, learning another language, you know, you don't have to be good to mm-hmm. get a lot of the, the benefits, you know, it, for, for many. Um, learning, uh, just sitting down at, at the piano or at some instrument for five or 10 minutes a day, it's, it's kind of, it's a form of, of meditation. It's a form mm-hmm. of, of engaging in flow. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of, again, because with, um, you know, music to me is, you know, as, as a biologist who has studied learning through sound, um, and sound, our hearing brain, engaging our cognitive sensory motor and reward systems. Well, music is kind of the jackpot. So, you know, I really encourage people and even encourage, you know, encourage parents of children. Um, you know, I think one of the best things that one can do is to, um, to, 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 to play, to make music, mm-hmm. um, to engage in, um, in in important sonic experiences like conversation mm-hmm. so to really and to think about what what gets in the way of a good conversation maybe we need to have a heating system that's quieter mm-hmm. um you know noise you know we live in a very noisy world and we don't realize it's just things i mean we, we don't even realize that we are um aware of the noise until it goes away you know we often Mm -hmm. we have the experience of the the air conditioning turning off or the truck outside that it was idling and it it kills the they kill the ignition and suddenly you know you you didn't even realize that the noise was there but when it goes Mm -hmm. off you you, you take a breath. And so, yeah, you know, yeah. I think we, we live in a constant state of, of alarm because mm-hmm. of our noisy world. Um, but it does get in the way of, of our communications with sound. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I think be, being really aware of what can we do uh, and, and also not to distract ourselves, you know, we, we get beeped our, 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 our dryer tells us when it's done. Um, mm. You know, car fobs have to beep um, mm. unless you turn it off. You know, but does my neighbor have to hear every time I, I come home? Or oh, right. Yes, yes. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that that we can choose mm-hmm. not to break our focus, not to um, disorder mm. our mm. mind, so that we can keep it sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think that that we really do have a choice mm-hmm. in many things like that. 
um, you know, I think we, as a species, we are forgetting how to listen, mm-hmm. you know, because if, if there's so much racket going mm-hmm. on, you won't hear the nuances of, um, yes. you know, the, the, the sounds that are around us. Mm-hmm. And so um, that really is, I think, a, a, a wonderful way mm-hmm. of um, honoring sound in mm-hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. and um, strengthening the sound mind. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it's a, it's a cumulative effect of all that that environmental noise, the industrial world, you know, or modern world sort of noise that we all sort of take for granted, but our nervous system or our underlying autonomic nervous system is always, as you say, on guard and aware of it. And, and, and yeah, when it does stop, it is like that... Oh my gosh, you know, that that effect. But that's going to impact your wellness over time, your immune system, yeah, your cardiovascular system, as you mentioned, and and your state of your state of mind and, and how you regulate your mood and behavior. So um, I know in your book you give some other strategies about, you know, even wearing earplugs or noise cancellation head headphones, and you sort of yeah, go into a few more sort of details about those other strategies to to help with with sort of managing that other noise to decrease that load on your on your on your body i i think i i i am personally not a fan of noise cancelling headphones because uh they actually produce noise to cancel Mm. the noise and Mm so you know sound is pressure that's why we measure Mm. it in sound pressure level um and so you're creating additional pressure and often the cancellation is not perfect so you have many many people experience fatigue Mm -hmm. after using noise cancelling headphones for a while Mm -hmm. Um, there are many things we don't know about them but um it's again it's my scientific gut feeling at least for myself that i would uh, rather use a passive Mm-hmm. um ear mold or uh, uh, I, I actually like to use the the, the wax mm-hmm. um uh ear protection because it it molds to to, to my twisty turny ear canals so what would be your suggestion for people who travel a lot on on an airplane the noise cancelling or the actual no. like earplugs well uh, so earplugs if you're not listening to something mm-hmm. I mean, just just passive earplugs um, and if you are listening to something, I have um, gotten um, um, my, my um, if, say, if I, I want to be listening to an audiobook or to some music, um, I have an, a driver, so you know, it's going to be delivering sound mm-hmm. um, that is, um, it can either be a cord or a Bluetooth, um, but I have a um, it, it, it is actually inside an ear mold. Mm-hmm. So I have an ear, an ear mold that is um, shaped to my ear. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, it is blocking the noise of the engines mm-hmm. while it is delivering really nice sound mm-hmm. um, from the audiobook or the music that I'm listening to. Mm. You know, I use these also when I when I, I play drums. You can see drums. Yeah, I, saw, I was noticed your drums um, in the background. So, so <laughs> you know, we um, the, the these um, um, these these insert 
um, uh, phones and earplugs serve as earplugs because you know I, I, it attenuates the sound that I'm making. While at the same time, you know, if I'm playing together with um, you know my favorite band, I can hear that very very clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, there, there there are various things that that we can do. And, and I also want to mention something about aging. Um, the, if you go to a conference on aging, everything that you can measure gets worse mm -hmm. in terms of time. You know, and, and, and I know as I'm getting older, um, you know, I used to be able to unlock my back door holding a baby, not waking up the baby, and a bag of groceries very quickly. Um, you know, now, even with my hands empty, I got to find the right key and then get it in the lock and, you know, things are slower, but um, there is so much that our culture and also we lose track of biologically is, is, is the things we can't measure, like wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a reason that in certain cultures, um, older people really are honored because of, of you know, I mean, just think of how much more you know now than you did decades ago. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I think that we are sometimes, um, and I think that this kind of goes along with, the, the, a, whole, with, with a holistic perspective, um, we're just focused on what you can measure and not on the things, I mean, it's very, very difficult to measure wisdom. Mm -hmm. And yet it's, it, 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 it exists. Yes, um, yes. So, um, so I, I think, I think it, it's important in this age of um, measurement mm -hmm. that, I mean, I, I love measurement. You know, it's it's really important. It's the basis for so much of what I do. Right. Um, but we cannot lose track of what are all the things that we're not measuring. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, and I think that that you, um, I, I think that you have some sense of that in the clinical yeah. practice that that you do. Oh, a hundred percent. Because I know so you know, so much things you can't measure where you see over time, particularly for a child with autism, for instance, where you know, we all look at, well, do they have eye contact? But I don't want a child just staring at me. I want a child who has a sense of presence, a sense of awareness of me and an interest to engage with me as another human being. So how do you measure that? You can't. <laughs> but it's all those, those, those subtleties which really are um, the foundations that make us human, that makes us, I know they're the beginnings of we're starting to get, we're going to get change here, we're going to get momentum and, um, yeah, that when I see those those things beginning, though, you can't measure those. No, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, emotional term. Well, Nina, I have gone way over time with what I thought. I thought, thank you, know, you've been so... So lovely with your time and sharing your knowledge. And I know there's other things I'd love to 
um, ask you that are in your book, but people just need to read your book. And I know you talk a lot about just the impact of sound in nature and there's some amazing little tidbits of knowledge in there. So people need to read the book. But I think for um, for our cl clinical world listening to this, as well as we have just listeners of people who are trying to find wellness and health in their life, whether it's physical wellness from immune issues from chronic fatigue or um, wellness wellness for, for mental health. Um, I think our interaction with sound is a, another big piece of the puzzle to in that journey of, of being a better clinician, but also helping people you know, optimise their health. So um, please check out Nina's lab, Brain Vaults, as well as read her book on Sound Mind. You'll get a lot out of it. And, and, um, and I will put links in the podcast to, to those additional resources that Nina spoke about, um, as well as a book. And, um, and again, Nina, thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you and um, yeah, have a lovely afternoon, rest of your afternoon. Well, thank you so much, and and I, I really love your uh, your very thoughtful questions and and your thoughtful correspondence leading up to the interview. So thank you. I hope everyone enjoyed this session just as much as I did speaking with Nina. We did not touch on all the topics discussed in her book, so I encourage you to read of Sound Mind. I just want to add a few more points that I took from reading Nina's book. Firstly, I strongly wish to emphasize the importance of expanding our knowledge to be more aware of the impact of sound on our neuroceptive system. And as a consequence, our ability to maintain optimal homeostasis for mental and physical well-being. Dr. Krauss quotes Helen Keller. Blindness disconnects us from things. Deafness disconnects us from people. As polyvagal-informed individuals or therapists, we certainly understand the importance of being able to connect. How we process sound, voices, greatly impacts this. Nina's work has expanded our knowledge of the importance of the more complex neural feedback system from the brain to the ear to fine-tune our listening and create the connection of meaning in sound. Her lab has developed key measures for understanding auditory processing in the brain. Interestingly, significant processing occurs in the midbrain where we know there are connections to the amygdala and motor centers, which are wired to speedily process sound for safety or defense. Krauss, also speaks about whole brain processing of sound with significant crosstalk with other senses. She says that making sense of sound is profoundly governed by how we feel, think, see, and move, and conversely influences how we feel, think, see, and move. The sounds of our lives shape our brain. Sound is an invisible ally or enemy of brain health. As I said, I hope you enjoyed the information that Nina shared in our discussion. 
I will include links to Nina's lab brain vaults, as well as the two articles that we spoke about in the show notes. My next guest is Dr. Ariel Schwartz, who teaches about polyvagal theory and yoga. Take care till next time, Joanne. If you would like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol and you are located in Australia or New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia. The website is integratedlistening.com.au. And for the rest of the world, please contact Unite ILS at integratedlistening.com.au.